You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid and The Driven. And not joining me uh, today is David Leach from ITK Services. Um, he actually have as, has an interview in the bag, but um, right now he's off enjoying um, offshore wind, um, not at the end of a turbine blade, but in a boat. Um, So he'll be back with us next week, Uh, but he's got a pretty fascinating interview that he did before he left um, with a US energy expert and strategist about gravity storage and green hydrogen. Are they real things? Can they be done? Can they be done cost effectively? We'll get to that sometime very soon. Um, Before, I just wanted to give a bit of a wrap of the news, and I'm going to have to do it all by myself rather than discussing it with David. But I think one of the big things in the last week, the uh, electric vehicle summit that was held in Canberra, um, quite a remarkable um, day, really, when you think about it. Um, Extremely positive. A lot of people sort of working together. Uh, uh, We've made great progress on the grid, of course, in... um, the transition to renewables, so much more to do. Um, but the next big thing to look at is transport and then probably household electrification. Uh, this was a summit where Labor Minister Chris Bowen came and um, made it pretty clear that he was very interested in having a fuel emission standard in Australia, which has really been the missing link um, for Australia. There is so much demand for electric vehicles um, in the country at the moment and so little opportunity to actually get one. Certainly absolutely no opportunity to get uh, one at the moment for much less than $45,000, which of course is out of reach of most people. But even the more expensive cars are just simply not available. So with any luck, we will have a discussion paper released soon. There will be feedback on that and we should be marching towards having a fuel emission standard. I guess the crunch is really going to be, are they going to be um, mandatory? Are they going to be biting? Are they going to be in line with Europe and other markets? Um, if they're not, there's probably not much point really. And I think Chris Bowen made that very clear. So look, um, fascinating conference. Uh, a lot of car makers there, a lot of um, federal and state ministers either there or um, coming through audio. Everyone very much in support. Um, basically, really, I mean, a, a week after state and energy ministers agreed to put environment into the grid, they decided that now they're going to put environment into transport. And that's such an important thing. Um, another thing I think is worth pointing out, I think, is a, um, a, a, a probably a most popular by a long way article in Renew Economy this week, a, uh, a wonderful study done by David Osmond from Windlab, 100% renewables. And there's so much debate about renewables and how do you get to 100% or close to 100% and how much story do you need? Storage, sorry, do you need? Uh, there's actually been some interesting studies, one by Ecola, um, also by the CSIRO, which sort of point to the fact that you don't actually need as much as everyone says you need. But um, David Osmond has basically just doing a week-by-week plot of uh, tracing the conditions in the past year um, and coming to the conclusion at the end of it that based on this year, you might only need about 24 gigawatts of storage, five hours of storage to support 100% renewable energy grid. Of course, you'd need a lot more wind and solar than we've got now and probably um, uh, uh, several multiples of that. But it's... um, it's a really interesting study. Sheds New Light doesn't answer all the questions about getting to 100% renewables. There's a little other things to answer about transmission and grid security and all those inertia and uh, the spinning machines and the replacements of those that we uh, now enjoy. But um, really worth um, looking at. It's on the website. So uh, please look at that. Look, without any further ado, we're going to go to the interview with David Leach with Michael Barnard, um, who's a energy analyst and strategist and author. Um, he's advisor to a uh, several different companies and organizations, including Agora, 
um, an electric flight company, um, his own consultancy, and he's been writing some very interesting stuff about um, green hydrogen and the shipping of that and also some of the gravity storage, which has attracted a lot of interest. Uh, a lot of big companies investing in it and possibly doing deals with it. And um, Michael's a little bit sceptical about it, but um, I shall leave it to David and Michael to explain what it's all about. Welcome, uh, Michael Bernard, uh, TFI strategy, uh, uh, Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, thank you, David. I'm pleased to be here. All the way from Canada. Um, I'm hoping we're going to cover a, a few topics today uh, that will help us to understand the tra transition that we're going through in Australia uh, through decarbonisation. I think our course that we are decarbonising the electricity uh, sector is very firmly set now, uh, but lots of questions remain, uh, I guess, about what that means in the broader context. Uh, just for the listeners' benefit, Australia is the second or third largest exporter of thermal energy. And as the world decarbonises, uh, that's not going to be very big business at some point, and we need to replace that. And so one of the uh, options for Australia is, of course, uh, green hydrogen, which there's been a tremendous discussion and investment in and a lot of big ideas put forward. Um, Michael, um, I wanted to talk, ask you a little bit about the general process of liquefying and shipping uh, uh, hydrogen, if you could just talk about maybe the energy uh, involved in the actual and the actual process of liquefying hydrogen and what's involved in shipping it. Sure, and it, the best comparison is if we're going to ship hydrogen as hydrogen is to liquid natural gas. So the very same process. You chill it a lot and you shove it in circular tanks in a big tanker and you drive it across the ocean. Um, but hydrogen versus liquid natural gas has got some significant differences. For one thing, it, it liquefies at about 24 degrees above absolute zero. You know, so that's about 273 degrees colder than we like it as human beings. It's really cold. Um, and that takes more energy. So when we look at liquid natural gas versus hydrogen, hydrogen takes three times as much energy to liquefy as liquid natural gas. So that's a, you know, an efficiency challenge for hydrogen. Um, and you, have, you, you go through a variety of cycles. There's a bunch of interesting technical stuff. If you really want to nerd out, talk to Paul Martin. Um, but you actually have to go through these processes um, three or four times to get down to minus 24 degrees or to 24 degrees Kelvin. So then you put it in the big tanks and they have to be really big globular tanks because it's so cold the thermal insulation is incredibly important and the most efficient thermal unit is a ball. You know, that, that means that the less, least of something called boil off occurs. Now liquid natural gas, when it's liquefied and it's super cooled and it's on those tankers, it loses about 0.1% of its liquid natural gas and something called boil off every day. You know, and that 0.1% means it just evaporates into the air. Now with, liquid natural gas because the energy requirements are easier and some other stuff they can actually capture that lng that that natural gas and either reliquify it or if they're running the ship on natural gas which is a proposal then they can actually use it to power the ship so there's potential there doesn't really work with hydrogen though because hydrogen um once again different has its boil off rate is a, at best about 0.2 percent per day so every you know, five days, it loses 1% of all the energy you put in it. Um, and shipping from, I'm just going to say shipping from Australia, it's going to take a, um, a few weeks to get to most markets. Like, uh, I think that, uh, for example, the first uh, LNG shipment from Australia docked in the UK um, this week, you know, to help with their energy crisis. That's probably five weeks at sea. Um, you know, it's a non-trivial amount of time. So that's one of the other problems with shipping hydrogen as a gas in, in liquefied form is you lose a lot of the energy along the way. Now, there is actually one more problem, but it, you know, do you want to stop there? And I'll stop here and I'll, then I'll tell you the next problem with this. So just to be clear, I think uh, I read somewhere that the actual liquefaction process, uh, the cooling process of hydrogen, 
uses about a quarter of the actual energy contained before it's cooled. Is, 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 have I got that approximately right? It's about right. It's 27% or so. You know, it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's very energy intensive. And of course, that green hydrogen is coming from somewhere. So, you know, you're creating, uh, if you're in theory, you're creating green hydrogen with electrolysis of water using wind and solar energy that's firm by storage. Um, you know, but then you have to spend another quarter of the energy that's embodied in the hydrogen just to get it to the point where it's shippable. Yeah, um, and I, I'm interested in this liquefaction because it's, uh, we've talked a lot about the cost of electrolyzers in Australia and the cost of the wind and the solar to run the electrolyzer. Uh, and even though there aren't many operations of that at scale yet, the sort of theory of it's well understood. <laughs> um, but the actual liquefaction, um, I'm trying to get a sense of the actual physical process of running it. You, you use the hydrogen, do you, to, to power a compressor, essentially, a heat exchanger of some description. And I'm trying to get a sense, I guess, of... Uh, um, firstly, let's just talk about that. Is that how you do it, use a heat exchanger? Uh, you are using heat exchanger and compression. You're mostly running that off electricity, though. Um, you know, it's, it, you're not using the hydrogen to power the hydrogen liquefaction process unless you really want to be inefficient. You know, just using um, renewable energy that's firmed with storage, you know, and transmitted to the site for liquefaction, it, it's a big draw. I'll give you a comparison. Up, up here in British Columbia, um, you know, foolishly, we're trying to get into the liquid natural gas market. Um, have been for a decade or so. And I say foolishly because, um, you know, it's a dead-end market. It's not a strategically long-term market. Um, and, you know, the one LNG plant was expected to take up as much energy as the entire city of Vancouver and another small city, so about 1.5 million people every year. So that's the electrical draw for LNG. And hydrogen is three times that. Yeah, no. yeah I, I, the, the, uh, well, I'll come back just um, so uh, just for our listeners, an LNG plant consumes about 4% of the input gas very broadly in, in the production of the LNG. And uh, so that's 4%. And then hydrogen we're talking about is 27%, whether it comes from uh, external grid electricity or, or, or some other process. I mean, um, <laughs> it's hard to talk about units here Michael, but if we talked a little bit about if you were to visualize the sort of um, compression part of it as a, as a share of the total capital cost of the project, uh, which is very hard, uh, how would you, how, what share do you roughly in your head do, would you have for this compression process? Um, well, the, the compression process is an expense, um, an operating expense, not a capital cost. I don't tend to think of it that way. I haven't broken the numbers out that way. I, I'm not particularly fussed about that. I, I've looked at the energy expenses, um, and I've looked at the um, you know, and I looked at the um, electrolysis process, what it would take to achieve reasonably priced hydrogen for electrolysis, given the high capital cost of the infrastructure. But I, I haven't bothered to tear apart a liquid hydrogen plant expense um, capital costs. Right. Okay. No worries. Let's let's move on. And then we've got the uh, the shipping, which we've talked about. Uh, where the main uh, you can't also um, we've talked about the boil off rate, uh, the, but also I think the actual physical volume that you can uh, move per ship, uh, the, the volume of energy uh, is actually lower compared to LNG, isn't it? What's a, what? How should I think about that? Well, yeah. It's not the volume, by the way. It's it's the um, if you think about the gas has energy embodied in it. Well, hydrogen is more diffuse. It is less energy dense than liquid natural gas. Um, it's about a third as dense. So you can only move about a third as many units of energy, whatever units you want to use. We, we don't want to you know, get into gigajoules and other stuff like that. But basically the delivered energy of, you, of use at the other end is about a third for the same tanker. So we take a... Um, you know, uh, a Vortzilla uh, powered QMAX with like 266,000 cubic meters of liquid natural gas, we delivered the same thing, we'd only get about a third the energy. And it costs three times as much to 
um, you know, to, um, to liquefy it and we lose more of it along the journey. So, you know, we kind of get to the end and it's, um, at in the best case with the cheapest possible electrolysis, the best assumptions around that, um, it's really down at the point where we're seeing, um, a, in the best possible case, five times the cost per unit of energy delivered at the other end. And sure, so, sure. I, I, we, we can do the electrolysis cost, but I just want to focus on the shipping cost. So um, I'm just, uh, you can only ship a third of the, uh, of the, of the energy. So uh, should I think that the shipping cost per se is about three times uh, broadly, even excluding the extra liquefaction uh, cost, uh, but just the shipping cost is going to be per unit per gigajoule, if you like, is going to be about th three times what the shipping cost for LNG is per, per gigajoule. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, it's a bit more than that. It's um, uh, simply because we have to uh, you know, account for the boil off. Um, I mean, I, I did the math on the average. Uh, I, I did the math for Namibia because who doesn't do math for Namibia? They have a, a, a plan there to ship uh, liquefied hydrogen up to Europe. And it was uh, 28 days at sea, including berthing at both ends. Um, you know, and that 2%, um, that 0.2% per day, best case scenario, you know, that turns into a chunk of change as well. So That's why. What, I, yeah, yeah. So this interests me because the way I think about it is, is comparing the uh, cost of producing green hydrogen in Japan, say, with the cost of uh, producing green hydrogen in Australia, which would certainly be a lot less at the point of production and then shipping it to Japan. And by the time you take these, you know, shipping LNG is broadly 10%, I think, from memory of the delivered price, very roughly. Uh, and, and, you know, whereas shipping green hydrogen, it might be 20 or 30% of the delivered price, maybe even a bit more. And so you need to be a lot cheaper in Australia to be competitive with, say, uh, offshore wind green hydrogen produced in Japan. Uh, that's the way I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I did a, um, a study this year for Corporate Europe Observatory and the Transnational Institute. They asked me to look at um, manufacturing of green hydrogen in northern uh, African countries, um, Morocco, Algeria, and Egypt for the European market, because Europe is um, in this weird place where they think they're going to use hydrogen for energy. It's, you know, as Paul Martin says, energetic vandalism, um, and it doesn't make any sense uh, compared to alternatives, but that's where Europe's kind of going right now they've been captured by um lobbyists who think that who who know that that's a really good idea for them but if not for society um and as we look at this uh it is important to compare and contrast um lng uh you know just natural gas pipelines or natural gas uh liquefied um to hydrogen and the alternative modes of transportation now it, even the manufacturing of green hydrogen is you know vastly more expensive per unit of energy than um manu than just extracting natural gas from the ground if you make um if you make blue hydrogen um by you know, using steam reformation of natural gas you know the, the cost per unit is about you know four times what the uh same energy delivered as natural gas is and if you, you know, it's green hydrogen firmed, which means transmission, storage, wind and solar um, to get, you know, uh, and that, that means you're going to be paying for the storage and transmission costs for, for firming at some point in there. You're going to be paying grid costs for electricity. Um, this is the case for um, the, Europe, the Australian efforts as well. You know, because you need firmed electricity 24-7, 365 in order to overcome the capital costs of the major chemical processing plant, which uh, of which the electrolyzers are only one component of the expense, you know, that means you have to have a diverse set of uh, wind and solar farms. They're often quite far from where you're manufacturing. And then you have to have storage. So you need transmission and storage in there. Sure. That, that part of it, Michael, I think uh, we in Australia uh, have thought about endlessly, if you know what I mean. That's a sort of well-trodden ground. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's the... Um, it's the it's the other bits that kind of interest me uh, for this conversation. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I just I, I I hesitate to not mention that because people keep asserting that hydrogen will be green hydrogen can be made cheaply, 
And the reality is that even when it's a buck, it's still a lot more expensive, a buck per kilogram, it's still a lot more expensive than natural gas. So. Yes, I think that's, a, what are we talking about? Seven kilograms per gigajoule, of course, is something like that, isn't it? I seem to recall. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Uh, so, you know, of course, with natural gas prices at uh, $40 a gigajoule, uh, all of a sudden green hydrogen looks much more attractive right now, depending on where you think uh, uh, um, uh, 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 gas is going to settle. But your conclusion was, uh, in regard to Namibia and, and Algeria and that, that it didn't really make much sense to, to ship the hydrogen uh, to, to Europe. You, you, you think Europe should instead um, do it itself? Well, let's talk about why it doesn't make sense. Is anybody happy about paying the very high prices of natural gas right now? They're multiples of what they were, um, you know, in, in summer of 2021. Um, and, you know, some of that is just structural. The um, uh, Saudi Arabian and Russian um, price war on oil was targeted at a lot of producers of shale oil and unconventional oil, which is where a lot of the natural gas in the world came from. It's that process of unconventional extraction of fossil fuels that led to natural gas being a cheap, stably priced commodity that was easily turned on and off. And that's going away because of the Saudi Arabian and Russian price war and now the invasion of Ukraine and the implications there. But nobody in uh, energy strategy is saying we can afford to pay these prices for natural gas. So it's not like green hydrogen is amazing it's just not quite as expensive as an untenable cost so green hydrogen looking better as a source of energy still means it looks really really bad as a source of energy it's very expensive energy yeah yeah no uh, i think we can agree on that and uh personally uh I, I, I see it as something that's used to do the last, uh, you know, for the hard to decarbonize sectors like steel uh, yep. uh, uh, and and the last 10 percent of uh, decarbonizing the electricity system, you know, which which is all every study shows is a lot more difficult, but also arguably the least important part to worry about. It's getting the first 70 or 80 percent done. Let's just uh, switch uh, switch well, vehicles. I, can I think we can, want to pull this apart just a little bit because I, I think that. You know, you asked about, um, you asked a couple of key questions, you brought up a key point. So the key question you asked is, how should they do it instead? Um, and the answer I have always is high voltage direct current transmission um, is, loses only 3%, 3, 3 to 3.5% of energy for 1,000 kilometers of delivery. Uh, so you can push um, renewable energy into an HVDC pipe We've got 3,500 kilometer uh, uh, high voltage direct current transmission running right now and multiple proposed, including one from Australia to Singapore, which I think is a great idea. One from Morocco up to UK, which is a great idea. Medgrid, which you know crosses the Mediterranean in three different places to make Northern Africa part of the European grid. Um, and then use the electricity where, at the industrial sites that need hydrogen. So you avoid all the transmission costs, you get firmed, you, you avoid all the shipping costs of hydrogen, all that liquefaction, you just make it where it's used. And, and making it where it's used makes sense because it's so expensive to ship that we don't ship it. Right now, 85% of hydrogen that we use globally is manufactured at the place where it's used. And I want to talk a bit about where it's used because there's you know, we, we have this idea that we are going to massively increase our use of hydrogen, but in fact, it's going to go the other way. And, and there's two reasons for that. The two, you know, there's a, about um, 90 million tons of pure hydrogen and about another 30 million tons in synthetic gases. Well, talking about the 90 million tons, about 50 million tons of that is used in oil refineries to desulfurize fossil fuels. Uh, going forward a few decades, we're not going to be doing that. So that entire 50 million ton demand is going away. Secondarily, the next big one, about another 33 million tons, is fertilizer, ammonia-based fertilizers to get nitrogen onto soil around the world. And that actually is a climate problem in the range of aviation. So all of aviation, and you know, it's, it's, it's a big problem. And so we have to solve for that. And the way we solve for that is by 
um, using a lot less fertilizer. And the way we use less fertilizer is uh, precision agriculture, low tillage agriculture, and agrogenetics for nitrogen fixing. But that diminishes the demand for fossil fuel-based fertilizers or green hydrogen sourced fertilizers quite substantially. Um, so we're not going to be using it nearly as much. And then there's some growth areas. You mentioned steel. That's, you know, we could use direct, we're, we're experimenting with direct reduction of steel, pretty much the same kind of thing we do with aluminum right now, where you just use electricity directly, or we could use hydrogen. There are some alternatives there as well. But yeah, we're, we're not going to have as much hydrogen in the same places. And that gets to the question, well, what are we going to need it for? We need it for ammonia, for fertilizer. And shipping ammonia is a known problem. There's about 60 tankers running the uh, running around already. And if we're delivering it as a chemical, not as a fuel, the price differential problem is not nearly as problematic. Um, as a chemical, it's just, you know. Yeah, so so it's just uh, cutting through there, I, I meant to mention that. I mean, one way of avoiding this shipping hydrogen uh issue is to uh, convert it to ammonia at the point of production and ship it and that can avoid all the shipping costs but you're then left with the issue of uh, how to use the ammonia at the other end if you have to reconvert it to hydrogen well, you essentially put all that cost back on and then some don't you oh yeah no uh, if you're shipping ammonia as a energy delivery medium it's actually even worse it's just very expensive to convert hydrogen to an interim fuel and then turn it back into hydrogen or uh, energy at the other end. It's just a very wasteful process. Um, if you're using ammonia as an industrial input to fertilizer or the other uses of ammonia is for, then you don't care as much. It's not energy, so you're not throwing away as much energy and wasting all that. And potentially you can put the ammonia directly uh, as a fuel in, in if you don't care about NOx and stuff like that, directly into a generator to replace gas in, in, in the burner or even to replace uh, a coal burner with ammonia as Japan is experimenting with right now. You, you could, but once again, it's insanely inefficient because you're throwing away all the energy. It's very energy intensive to manufacture hydrogen. We're, we're, and that's a, a well understood problem, by the way. We're now at the point where we're running to the laws of thermodynamics and limits. It's like wind energy. It's like Betz's law says we're not going to get better than 93%, um, you know, or 53.9% um, gathering energy from the wind. We're already approaching the physical limits for how much energy it takes to make hydrogen out of water. You know, we'll get a one or two or 5% of efficiency improvement, but that's about it. But then every time, if you turn it into ammonia, you're stepping on it with more energy, and so you lose more energy. It, um, if you ship it as an energy form, you're using energy. If you use it at the other end, then you're using it. If you use it directly as ammonia in a thermal process, well, then you're throwing away all the with the, all the inefficiencies of a thermal generator. Like if you use it as a, a as a gas to burn in an old coal plant instead of coal, well, then you're throwing away another fifty percent because coal plants at best are fifty percent efficient with the coal with the steam cycle. Sure, yeah. that's 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 the trouble with all of those. Uh, anything that involves a turbine, I, you, your efficiency automatically drops to you know thirty or forty percent. Um, in the interest of time, Michael, we've we've covered, and I'm I'm sure there's a lot more to say about hydrogen and ammonia, and there's so much enthusiasm for it, and I'm sure these issues have all been deeply considered and. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to get a hydrogen manufacturer on to, to talk about their side of it. Um, uh, but I just wanted to move on to a couple of other uh, technologies in the uh, what I call the firming or storage space. That have, uh, and I guess um, you know, in Australia, we mostly focus on batteries and pumped hydro, and I think with very good reasons, uh, uh, and a little bit on gas at the at the very end, but. Uh, there are always uh, people out there, competitors, and that's what's great about markets that have different ideas. And one of them is this kind of uh, idea propounded by Energy Vault, which is basically instead of pumped hydro, uh, you can lift blocks up using a crane uh, uh, and lower them down a mine shaft or from within a building. Um, you know, my reading suggests, Michael, that you're not particularly enthusiastic about this technology. Perhaps you could talk just a little bit about why. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's dumb as a box of hammers and twice as ugly. Um, you know, it, so um, let's start with, you mentioned pumped hydro. And, you know, when people talk about pumped hydro in Australia, I say, Matt Stocks and the Australian National University did an amazing thing a few years ago. I don't know if you've talked to Matt or not. I have. Um, yeah. 
and have you had him on the show yet or have you talked about we, we haven't had him on the show but we're, uh, and we haven't had his uh boss uh andrew blokers on the show yet but let's let's keep moving yeah point is there's stupid amounts of resource for pumped hydro it's an insanely effective mature technology we know how to build it every place where there's uh, coal workers their geography is typically suitable for pumped hydro and we've got a bunch of people we want to turn to green energy stuff you know, it, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, Snowy River 2 is a kind of a bad example of good pumped, of pumped hydro, but that's a different story. Uh, but that's the thing. What you need for gravity storage is you need a large mass, lots of kilograms of, of mass, a long way up. Um, so Matt's study looked at 400 meters separation at minimum between the upper and lower reservoirs, 400 meters. That's the 400 meters is important. And he, he looks at a gigaliter of water, which is, you know, uh, what is that? A billion kilograms of water or some stupid number like that. Like every liter is, it's a giga kilogram, whatever that is. Um, it's a really big number. Uh, that's because the formula is really simple. Mass times gravity um you know is the important thing times the height you know so you have to have a, a lot of mass and you have gravity of 9.8 meters per second squared and then you have um height and it's linear it's not like wind turbines where you make the blades longer and you get the square of the swept you know the square of the radius for the swept area it's just linear more mass equals more energy more height equals more energy and to get a lot of storage like a gigawatt hour Stocks calculates, you know, he says, you know, 500 meters, a gigaliter, that's a gigawatt hour of storage, right? So that's very big. Now let's compare the energy vault building concept. Um, just starting with this, they're about 70 meters. They're like a 25 story uh, building. So they're already down at a fifth or a sixth of the height. So that's a fifth or a sixth of the maximum amount of energy they can store just because you can't make a building um, to store this stuff 500 meters or 400 meters tall. That's a really tall building. Um, you know, and then that's problem one. Problem two is concrete. In order to have these block, these 30 ton blocks work, they have to be like reinforced concrete. So they need steel and cement and, and aggregate formed into blocks so they're durable. And you can only moves them up so far you know if you move them up 70 meters you're moving up from the ground floor up to the 25th floor the 24th floor then you have to shuffle them down rails to the back of the building well that's not nearly as much um weight as much mass as pushing water up because you can push a lot more water up the pipes i mean pumped hydro the pipes are 10 meters in diameter and you're pushing water up them or bringing it back down at high velocity. It's 10 meters of water, you know, and it's like a lot. Um, and so there's a lot more mass available in pumped hydro than there is in this building. You know, if, I, I think I calculated out that if they wanted actually into the, I think they had a 40 megawatt hour and it was like 273,000 blocks or something. It was just a stupidly big number. Um, so they're not going to be getting much storage. You, you drop a 30 ton mass down 70 meters, yeah, can run a microwave with it. You know, it's, it's not a lot of energy. So that's a problem. The, the low, lower mass and the lower height means a lot less energy that can be stored. Now, and then I think then there'll be a ton of maintenance as well. Uh. Oh God, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I live in high rises. I've lived in high rises around the world. They all have elevators and the elevators fail, you know, and, and to be clear, let's talk about the elevators. So a heavy freight elevator in a normal building will take about four and a half tons of goods, not a 30 ton. So we're not even talking a freight elevator. We're talking 10 times the scale of a freight elevator. That means the cables have to have that much more mass. The pulleys and wheels have to have that much more mass in order to be robust. 
And we have to put all that mass of the pulleys on top of the building. So the building itself, let's you know just briefly talk about, there's, there's two kinds of embodied carbon here, um, you know, and, and comparing and contrasting. Yes, tunneling and making a dam for pumped hydro has some embodied carbon. Um, but every one of these cement blocks, cement is a major global problem for, for embodied carbon. Yes, it's the, it's the fourth largest uh, source, of, a source of global warming. Yeah. Yeah, as is steel. Steel is also a high carbon solution. And we've got to solve for those. But a block of energy vault stuff, and they, they make all sorts of claims which don't stand up to the slightest scrutiny. Because if they had, um, if they had a technology that was cheap and could have the same characteristics as engineered concrete with cement, aggregate, and steel, they would be using it. It would be a massive win. And they don't have that. What they have is something that's not that, and it's not going to work out the way they, they claim it is. So we look at that and they say, okay, what's the embodied carbon? Well, it turns out to be really, 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 really bad. I mean, you, you kind of have to run one of these things if they're claimed capacity factors. I think their claimed capacity factors was 98%, which means 2% maintenance downtime per year. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I'm going to say best, the best wind farms in the world or at ninety-five percent. Uh, um, that's availability, obviously, not capacity factor. Uh, sorry, yes, availability. That's a, a availability for maintenance. And, but they're claiming they're going to be running ninety-eight percent of the time. They're going to have ninety-eight percent availability, and they're going to keep that up for forty years. Uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. And the, the next problem, you know, so the steel and the concrete means that they end up with. Um, I think I did the math on this. And I calculated in the best possible case scenario, taking all their numbers at face value, they would call the CO2 per, uh, per kilowatt hour would be double that of natural gas generation. Um, right. All right. Know, let, let, that's let, not a climate let, win. It's not. It doesn't. I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's a technology that got a big buzz. But uh, it's interesting as, a, as an ex-investment banking analyst who's, who's studied uh, technologies for years and years and years, you know, you start out sceptical about them all. And some of them uh, end up uh, turning out to be great ideas. And I'd include coal seam gas in that. Uh, and also, I think, wind. Uh, and, um, and some of them turn out to be complete duds or just not workable, maybe wave energy would be one, and, and I think this is certainly going to be one. Um, I Just quickly, Michael, in the, in the couple of minutes uh, that we've got left, I wanted to ask also about compressed air, which is another uh, technology that I think might get a bit of a run in Australia, and I think has a better, uh, better foundations myself uh, from when I've looked at it than, than uh, gravity storage using weights or something like that. How, how do you think about compressed air in, in particular circumstances where you've got, say, a, a natural cavern uh, available? Oh, uh, well, if you've got a natural cavern available and you don't have another use for it, um, you know, strategic reserves of natural gas, for example, um, you know, then maybe um, I, I put it in my also ran categories of uh, um, global grid storage requirements. I've done a projection through 2060 of grid storage demand and, and the curve for increasing uh, deployment per a, a gigawatt hour of power capacity. And pumped hydro is the top of the list. It's the biggest one. Then redox flow batteries, because they have some similar characteristics. And then cell-based batteries, lithium phosphate or lithium, lithium ion. And then there's 100 gigawatts of also ran. And for me, compressed air is in the also ran, um, down there with hydrogen. I, hydrogen is also an also ran. Um, uh, but that is 100 gigawatts. <laughs> this is a non-trivial amount of storage in the also ran category. Um, and you know, compressed air. The problem with compressed air, every time we do a lot of compression of gases, um, we end up with a lot of thermal management issues. Um, you know, it's just like uh, you have those, one of those little compressed air cans for blowing stuff, debris out of electronics or to your keyboard. When you put it on your finger, it's insanely cold. Well, it's insanely cold when it's coming out and decompressing, and it's insanely hot when you're compressing it. You know, and that Thermal management is a significant energy efficiency loss, and it's a problem to manage. You, it has, you know, puts limits on how fast you can compress and how fast you can decompress. And the thermal strain 
puts a lot of challenges on components. If you're running from, you know, a component from minus 40 to plus 80 in the course of an hour, that's a big thermal range. And so we have to have thermally neutral components. We have to have a whole bunch of stuff there. It's doable, but it's not as trivial as it sounds. Um, basically, anytime um, there's a lot of compression involved, then the thermal management starts sucking energy out of the system tremendously. Uh, at, at that, it's better than the big bubble of CO2 that they're doing compressed CO2 with, because at least you can use the air in the atmosphere. And it's just, you know, 78% nitrogen, 22% oxygen, some other traces, that little pesky molecule of CO2 in there. Um, but yeah. And, 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 and although I uh, am about as far from a scientist as you can possibly get, uh, uh, it seems to me that if you don't compress the air uh, enough, you won't get very good uh, efficiency at your turbine. You won't get much input power to your turbine. Is that no, right? No, you, you, need, you need some significant pressures. Um, you know, it, it's just, uh, I haven't run, bothered to run the numbers because the inefficiencies and the problems associated with uh, compression and heat management are fairly obvious. That doesn't mean that, you know, it won't pencil out in a few places where, you know, for example, you have a lot of electricity and you have a storage cavern that just happens to be handy. But then you have to have something, yeah, then you actually have to put the compressing pumps in there and the generating um, turbines. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm not seeing it going to be, you know, penciling no. out compared to pump storage or um, redox full batteries in, in many places. No, and I personally think, uh, for my money, actually, I, I actually think, for the most part, chemical batteries are going to end up being the winners. Uh, they may not be as good in some ways as redox batteries, but they're just—they're uh, the form that they're the easy option. And and uh, you know, when you're getting the volume growth actually going on, you're coming down the learning rate, and you get the cost reductions, uh, and and that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling kind of thing. But that, that well, that's my I, view. I, I do want to touch on that one because it's a power versus energy problem. So the power is like the horsepower of a car. The energy yeah, yeah. is like the size of the, the tank of gas. And we need stuff that is better than four to six hours of energy. And the cell-based batteries, the, the energy and the power are fairly tightly coupled. It's the decoupling of power and energy that pumped hydro brings and redox flow batteries bring that is the significant advantage of those form yeah. factors. Uh, Michael, I, so, I'm interested. We do need some stuff that's uh, longer duration, but uh, uh, don't you think that the actual major component of storage will actually be in the daily balancing market Why, uh, as opposed to the long duration seasonal storage? I mean, how do you think about that? Uh, I think of it as uh, a system of components. So um, I say we're going to overbuild renewables. Um, you know, uh, solar and wind are going to be doing the heavy lifting um, where we can actually add uh, relatively low carbon uh, hydro like northern Canada, for example, makes sense to add some more, you know, some more northern uh, north hydro. Then there's transmission to broaden the geographical reach so that you can um, manage the variability of the intermittency of renewables across a much bigger geographical range. That's why, you know, China's building an Asian super grid. And they want to like hook in Japan. They're going to have South Korea in there. They're going to have the ASEAN countries in their in their super grid, um, and that just gives them a big geographical region to draw electricity from and transmit electricity across. And then we get into and so overbuilt electricity um, and lots of transmission. The electricity goes from where it's generated to where it's needed. You don't need as much storage for same day. You need to do some balancing for the duct curve. And you and you know, Australia and California have that problem with all the rooftop solar you've got. Um, but then the same day is used for peaking, which is a fairly small percentage. It's used for some ancillary services um, around frequency and voltage control. But then you still need stuff for next day. Um, you know, if we, look, if we think about um, the vast majority of the high, uh, storage that's being built today, and there's a lot of it, there's like... Uh, 170 gigawatts of power of storage that's already on the grid. Um, almost all of that is pumped hydro, and almost all of that was built to give to time shift coal and nuclear energy 12 to 18 hours into the future. Yeah, it was it was built to back up nuclear energy when nuclear plants were out. Yeah, and the point though is that 
um, 12 to 18 hours is not same day. And we're going to be doing the same thing. We're going to be shifting wind energy to um, from the nighttime to the next day's peak energy, which is 12 to 18 hours away. We're going to be moving solar to the next morning and stuff like that. So the balancing act, my, 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 um, the way I read the, 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 these pieces and um, studies I've seen say we need longer duration storage, not for six weeks of storage, but a lot of it for four to 24 hours and a bunch more for um, up to a week. And then we have to have the strategic reserves as well. You know, and how we deal with the strategic reserves is a really interesting question. I've got some opinions. Other people have some opinions. I think hydrogen is dumb as a box of hammers. Um, but, you know, that's a different statement. The, the point is it's four to eight hours, which is kind of the economic limit with the power and energy coupling of cell-based batteries. It doesn't cut it in a decarbonized grid. It's All great right. for the start. All right, Michael. I, I think uh, there's a lot of discussion, to uh, a lot of water, so to speak, to flow under the bridge uh, yep. into, uh, before we get to where we're talking that. I just want to say thank you very much to Michael Bernard uh, for, for what I regard as some very insightful uh, comments on, 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 on hydrogen uh, um, uh, uh, weight-based storage uh, and, 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 um, and, uh, and compressed air. Thanks very much, Michael. David, it's been a pleasure. Um, look forward to uh, hearing the final result. And that was David Leach speaking with Michael Barnard, um, energy strategist and consultant now based in Canada. Um, interesting stuff. It's going to be fascinating to see, um, one, um, some of the, um, the, the, how the green hydrogen shipping does evolve and um, I'm particularly interested also in um, sort of the gravity storage um, issue and whether we will actually sort of see it in Australia. Um, I wonder too if it actually has an impact on the gravity train, the infinity train that um, Andrew Forrest Waterskew is also developing but that might be a slightly different proposition. Some other stories to probably think about um, over the last week. We're starting to see a lot of offshore wind players moving into the market, particularly now that Gippsland is about to be gazetted. I think we're up to about six or seven projects competing there. They won't, of course, all go ahead. I think the latest people to join um, the rush is DP Energy, the Irish-based developer. Um, they are the co-developers of what um, is well, what will be Australia's biggest wind and solar hybrid, the Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park in South Australia. And it's talking about up to 10 gigawatts of projects in five different regions in New South Wales and Victoria. Last week we had Vena Energy um, confirming their interest. Um, Shell is sniffing around. The world's biggest offshore wind player, Orsted, um, had people at um, the uh, Gippsland uh, Renewables Conference in Sale. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, so I think we're going to see a lot more interest there. And of course, we did mention, I think, briefly last time about battery storage. Um, Queensland's first big battery is finally in full operation. That's the one, Doan South Battery, um, uh, northwest of Bris uh, uh, near Brisbane. Um, we had. BlackRock investing in Acacia Storage, which is a, a very ambitious. Um, new storage developer company based out of Melbourne, which has got some really interesting projects in uh, Tasmania, uh, Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. And uh, we're seeing a lot more other storage projects. Speaking of storage, um, GenX um, also looks like it's going to be taken out by uh, Scott Farquhar, the uh, business partner of Mike Cannon Brooks, the co founder of Atlassian. Um, Scott Farquhar and his uh, wife uh, Kim Jackson have um, upped their bid and it looks like it's got the agreement of GenX though I'm not too sure that all the shareholders are entirely happy but um, as we saw with New Energy Solar the largest solar investor on the, on the stock exchange basically it agreed to sell the last of its assets um, last week to a Goldman Sachs company it's basically going to sort of um, do a big capital return to its shareholders and wind itself up 
And what's interesting about all these moves is that we hear quite often from people, from small investors saying, how do I get exposure or investing or seizing opportunities of the renewable energy transition? And the sad thing to say is that it's actually almost impossible because almost every listed company that there has been, which has been building and developing renewable energy projects, has not been properly valued by the market, seems to always trade at a discount. That, of course, infects their ability to raise equity and finance. And it seems so many of these companies are now going to be in the hand of the extremely rich people, we've seen Andrew Forrest um, buy out Windlab. Um, Kenneth Brooks, of course, has his own um, agenda with Sun Cable, with Andrew Forrest, and a whole bunch of other private investments. You've got Scott Farquhar now with Genix. Nothing wrong with this per se, but it's probably a bit frustrating that a the stock market can't value um, renewable energy investments properly, and two, that there's not much exposure or opportunity for small investors, and I'm not too sure quite what the answer to that is, apart from maybe retraining all the um, equity analysts, but um, David Leach would probably be best person to speak about that, but he's not here. He's off sailing somewhere, offshore wind opportunities. Anyway, we'll be back next week with David. With another guest, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And thanks everyone for listening out there and um, talk again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.